Hi, this is Tamsin Granger. This is Dan Abuhoff. With Tamsin and Dan, read the paper. It's Sunday, February 2nd, Groundhog Day. Happy birthday, Steed. Um, there's a lot of uh, controversy about whether the groundhog saw his shadow today. Yeah. Around here, he couldn't possibly see his shadow. It's a gloomy, gloomy, super gloomy day. Uh, so we have high hopes for an early spring, right? No, I, I don't. I never understood Groundhog Day. How does it work again? If the groundhog uh, sees his shadow, sees his shadow, and he runs back in his hole. Yeah, I guess. Yeah. And then we have I don't know nine more months of winter right, or something. Right. But uh, if not, if he doesn't see his shadow because yeah, there is no sun for some reason. I have an early spring. Well, I know. I read recently that the rate on that in terms of correctness is 40%. So, um, uh, whatever. That's not what it's about, Dana. Okay. okay. It's, it's superstition. Just roll with it. You know, I also, I also read that there are some people who do it with a fake groundhog, a stuffed groundhog. And they asked Bill Murray how he feels about that. Bill Murray, of course, the store of Groundhog Day. And he said he doesn't like it. It takes the thing out of the groundhog's hands. Uh, so, <laughs> so to speak. Yes. Yeah, there's lots of lot, lots of great groundhog stories, yes. including one where the groundhog actually bites De Blasio. Oh well, that's true. Too. And then De Blasio gets in trouble <coughs> for mistreating the Listen, groundhog. We, we can't be doing De Blasio right, stories. Right. That will well, get us because uh, we had a busy week. A busy week, um, and it started on Monday, Tuesday, Tuesday, where you and I, Tamsin Granger. And Dan Abuhoff went to the Metropolitan Opera to see Porgy and Bess. Well, this was actually a gift to you. Right. In uh, kind of honor of your retirement. Right. From? From Mike Shaper. And, uh, and, and his wife, so it's, it's super nice. Yeah. And there we were at the Met. And I realized, I hadn't thought about it, I've never been to the Metropolitan Opera before. Right. Have you? Um, I don't think so. We've been to... The movie theater broadcasting the Met. Right. We haven't been in the actual... And we've been to the City Opera, which is an yes. opera building right next door. But okay. we haven't been in the Met before. And it's, it's, you know, it's glorious and all that. It's really something. I mean, first of all, they took us to dinner. It was a very nice dinner. Yes, right. And uh, then into the opera, right. we got to go in the side entrance with them. Because they're because big time. they are subscribers. Right. Um, so just like Degas... Got to go into the side entrance of uh, the Paris Opera. There we were. Yeah. So uh, we're in the Met Opera and uh, the it's opera por- house. the Opera House, and it's uh, Porgy and Bess. And uh, we'll get to Porgy and Bess in, in just a second. But in, just in terms of opera, you know, we go to a fair number of Broadway shows and Broadway musicals, and the curtain uh, opens and they start uh, the performance. They start the singing, and it's glorious singing. And you and I have the same reaction, which is, what, what? happened? What happened to the volume? Someone's got to turn the volume up. You can hardly hear these people. The uh, microphones are not working. And it turns out, when you think about it, they don't have microphones because it's the Met, it's opera, and the point is that the the folks are supposed to have these glorious voices. You're supposed to be able to hear them well, unamplified, uh, in all their uh, subtle uh, sound. Um, and so you can fully appreciate what's going on. And it takes a little getting used to. Yes. Right? At the beginning, you keep saying, I can hardly hear these people. Uh, but you do adjust, right? I adjust. You do adjust. It. You adjust your expectations. Yeah. And you adjust what you're listening for. 
and uh, it begins to work. But here's a fun thing, though. Yeah, what? Uh, the opposite aspect of that is that in front, you know, on the back of every seat is a projection of subtitles right so you can you see so you can understand the words the words now maybe that's not so important for everybody since it was in english yeah but i actually found it very helpful i I couldn't um understand every word being sung well it's to some extent it's an opera speak well there's a reason for that and let me i'm going to come back to that in a moment I, i understand a lot of people had that I had pressed that button and we're following that. And certainly it's a, it's a big advantage when you're listening to an Italian opera um, to, hear, to see the words because you have the translation. But uh, yes, it, it, it made it clear in terms of what was being said here. And part of that was the amplification, but part of that was dialect. So let's talk a little bit about what, what Porgy and Bess uh, is. And there was, uh, I thought there was a pretty good uh, summary of Porgy and Bess uh, in the program that we were provided, and it sort of summarized it better than I could, uh, if I can find it. Yes, here's the way uh, the folks at the Met describe it. Porgy and Bess is a supremely American operatic masterpiece and the most ambitious work by one of the nation's greatest musical talents. Porgy and Bess focuses on the joys and struggles of a black neighborhood in Charleston, South Carolina in the early 20th century. The opera's score features a rich cache of individual solos, but the true core of the story is in its depiction of a remarkable community. Many of the memorable supporting characters have important musical and dramatic functions within the opera, and the chorus maintains a central role throughout. In spite of the marginalization of Catfish Row, the community has a profound understanding of the seasonal cycles of life and death, sometimes expressed in superstition, sometimes in sincere faith, and sometimes in nonsense syllables and choral vocal size, as if saying, this is too deep for words. Um, and of course, it is a masterwork by uh, George Gershwin. Uh, as, as they summarize it, the overall combination of music, word, and idea among a complex blend of Americana make this a unique and impressive work, both within and beyond the operatic repertory. Um, Look, Porgy and Bess was number one, groundbreaking, uh, in the 1930s because there wasn't anything in American opera. Uh, George Gershwin was writing popular music and suddenly said, I'm writing an opera. And there was a great debate. Was this an opera or was this something that was more of a musical? And it's a very ambitious story besides, which has become over time controversial. It's basically the story of this community, as just described, in uh, Catfish Row in Charleston, South Carolina, which is a poor community. Uh, it's uneducated people. They're religious. They're superstitious. Uh, they don't triumph necessarily over all that's thrown in front of them. It's a sad story. Uh, and people have strong reactions to it. Um, it's written... Uh, it's well, based it's, on... Oh, go ahead. Uh, the, um, a play written by DeBose Hayward. Right. And uh, the play was very successful, and that's, of course, based on a novel that he wrote called right. Porgy right. Uh, about these people, and he's from this area, and he uh, was white, right. and he wrote this uh, also with his wife, Dorothy, and uh, the novel was written in 1925, so that's nearly 100 years ago, and uh, the uh, play was quite successful, ran over 300 uh, performances in New York City. Yeah, did you know Dorothy went to Harvard? Dorothy went to Harvard? Yeah. Yeah. 
And anyway, Dorothy went to Harvard. Yes, his so, wife went to Harvard. Yes. How is that possible? As a it's, graduate student. Yeah, I, I, look, that's what I read. In any event, so they write because it. Harvard and, was male at that time. I'm telling you, uh, she went to Harvard. We'll look it up uh, later. Uh, in any event, uh, George Gershwin uh, looks at this property and he wants to make it into an opera. And he persuades the Haywards uh, that that's what should happen. And he goes and spends some time in South Carolina in order to make this into uh, his uh, masterwork. And it uh, comes out in uh, 1935. Right. Well, he had aspirations, uh, you know, in terms of writing classical music. Yeah. I mean, he was, uh, you know, not just, um, this was not a one-off for him. Uh, um, but it stands apart from a lot of his other work. I mean. Oh, a- absolutely. And so we had read about, uh, we had talked about this production, which was aspiring to uh, present the work in its entirety. <laughs> uh, there have been mother, many other productions that have kind of, uh, uh, what would you call it, um, abridged yeah. uh, productions uh, for, you know, you know, aiming at a more popular uh, audience, more popular taste-oriented audience, etc. Um, so it was uh, indeed, uh, I would say, ambitious. Uh, we should mention um, the leads, some of the leads. Uh, Porgy uh, was played by Eric Cohen, Owens. Uh, uh, Bess played by Angel Blue. Um, and uh, a lot of great voices. So what do you think? Uh, I liked Let me mention one final thing. I mean... Um... Uh, in the intro, the Met text mentioned that it uses dialect. And what that is, is the Gullah dialect. Apparently, it's a particular dialect that uh, combines a Creole. Uh, and there was a particular population called the Gullah uh, that was from the low country in the south. Folks descended from freed slaves and was an identified population. And they had their own way of speaking. So uh, it's a lot of colloquialism. And they speak in, you know, in ways that sometimes are a little bit odd and, frankly, are very hard to hear in uh, 2020, if that's where we are now. Um, but uh, that's clearly part of it. And, in fact, uh, Dubose Hayward was sort of particularly interested in the Gullah dialect. So when he, in the first text they put together, it was, did incorporate a lot of that dialect. And there is talk about George Gershwin attending church services where they use that dialect and he tried to incorporate it in the music. I'm going to come back to that later. So it sounds a little odd in some ways. Um, uh, I liked it. I liked it. I mean, it, look, it's the great masterwork. You can't ignore it. it, it it's the, one of the great masterworks in American music. It is what it is. I'm not used to opera. It's a different thing for me. But it kind of, you know, you recognize the popular songs, but that's not enough to make a great impression. It sort of washes over you. It's musical all the way through. It's this great tragic story. Uh, it takes its time. It's three and a half hours. But I enjoyed it a great deal. What did you think? I enjoyed it. Um, and you're right. It uh, took a while to adjust right. to uh, the you know lack of amplification and uh, the dialect and even the subject matter. Right. Okay. We're kind of dancing around this. Um, did you really like it? Uh, because you liked it or because it's supposed to be great? No, no, American. I like it. So here's what it is, the way I think about it. I did enjoy it. I mean, um, whether it's the kind of thing I would do every day is, is something else. But I'm not an opera goer. I'm not really oriented that way. 
clearly some adjustments required, but it has it is sort of a half step to an opera because it incorporates four or five popular songs that we all know. It ain't necessarily so. Uh, Bessie was my woman now. Summertime. There are songs in there. So if you're used to going to Broadway shows, you have your hits, if you will. And right. it's sort of, it's easier to connect to it than right. you would in an opera in which you're just saying, I'm hearing some music. I don't know what's the beginning of one aria and what's the end of another. I can't tell. Here you clearly can tell. So uh, it's sort of an entree in. Am I, did I go from zero to uh, 60? And I am opera, an opera lover? Uh, no. But it was, to me, a useful bridge for that. Now, critics uh, have said this is a, a um, terribly negative, caricaturish view of uh, black culture and stories. So where do you stand on that? Well, look, some critics. I mean, Dubose Hayward's writing what he's seeing. And he again, he did study the Gullah dialect. He's trying to get that as as precisely as he can. He's not; it's not an offhand attempt based on rumor about what things are like in the South. The man lived in South Carolina. George Griffin went to South Carolina, so it represents their best effort to reflect what they're seeing there and to tell a story that they think ultimately is sympathetic to the population down there. They're by, they're not out there to be critical of the population down there. So to me. Uh, it's very hard to criticize. This is a surprise that it's grating to hear that dialect, to hear characters speak that way in such an uneducated, you want to call it ignorant way in 2020. Yeah, it's grating, but that's the way that's the way they heard it. Right. Okay. It's not just the dialect, Daniel. It's a negative, negative story. It's a story. It's a sad story. It's a story. And uh, one could look at it and say um, it presents black people as drug addicts, Alcoholics and you know just uh, you know something? troubled troubled people. Well, I, I have two answers to that. First of all, that's just the two of the characters, three of the characters. Ninety percent of the people are, are very religious, very industrious, very much trying to support others in the community. That's all positive. The, the folks you're talking about—they're the main characters, but they're outliers. And secondly, it's a story. It's a story. I mean, uh, those are the characters are focusing on. Uh, you can have a story that takes place any place, any any time in history. It's it's often negative. I mean, if you go back to other operas, La Boheme or something like that, there, there's stories well, that's about a good tough point. times. Uh, I mean, that's what people, people point that's out. What, that's what people it's get excited of, about. It's larger than life right. uh, passions and uh, not always, right. uh, you know, true to life, to true to everyday life. Uh, situations and uh, denouements, and there were a lot of people were getting killed. <laughs> no, listen, <laughs> in no one random situation. But no one's going. Who's buying a ticket to say, uh, "Here's a happy family, and uh, they fit well in the minivan," and you know, and it, uh, everything was cool. That's not high drama. I mean, uh, you're writing about something that has a certain impact. Right. Um, so that doesn't that doesn't trouble me. Uh, and uh, you know, and. And to help us out, uh, we did. You are familiar with uh, Sondheim's view of the lyrics. Now, George wrote the music. Right, George George Gershwin. Right. Okay. And uh, his brother Ira did some of the lyrics, but DuBose Hayward did a lot of the great lyrics. And Sondheim's view. And Sondheim's known for saying, those are pretty great. Well, here's the thing. First of all, Sondheim has views on what what lyrics are good and what lyrics are bad. To him, the simplest lyrics 
are the best. Uh, and The most evocative of human emotion. Right. And he's very critical of his own lyrics. And I was telling you right. before, he's even West Side Story, he's critical of a lot of his own lyrics, like from I Feel Pretty. He thinks they feel contrived. Mm. Uh, they're not the simplest lyrics. To him, the great lyrics, therefore, in this show are Best You Is My Woman Now. The very simple lyric, it fits into the music, and that's great lyric writing. Those lyrics are written by DeBose Hayward, who was a poet. He was not a lyricist. He never wrote another lyric besides this. But this is what uh, Sondheim responds to. By contrast, a lot of the other lyrics, and people are very familiar with, uh, Sporting Life and Ain't Necessarily So, uh, you know, Methuselah lived 900 years, uh, and it goes on to call that living. It's a very complicated lyric. To um, People know that lyric, but Sondheim's dismissive of that. To him, that's not great lyric writing. And so he very much supports the DeBose Hayward lyrics, which he thinks are great. Well, the song that uh, stuck out for me yeah. actually was My Man's Gone Now. Okay. And that's uh, a woman singing about her husband. Uh, it's fairly early on. A, yeah. a minor character. Woman is gets washed killed. away. Yeah. No, no, no. That's a different. Oh, okay. Uh, and, uh, you know, there's that whole funeral scene. Oh, okay. Uh, okay. And uh, that was tremendously moving. Anyway, w- I mean, we should go on. We're really uh, lavishing a lot of uh, attention on if this. If you get these opportunity was, to go. It was a big night. Go. It was a glorious Glor- night. And certainly worth going. And, and, and again, uh, an entree into the opera for those who are uninitiated like you and I, right? Yes. Yeah, yes. so it's a great way. A to baby get into, step. Baby right? step. After our second <clears throat> baby step. Our first baby step was when we went to the Met Opera live Yeah. Uh, at the movie yeah, theater. Right. Okay. Yes. And so now we've been to the Met Opera house. Who, who knows what's now. next? So here's an interesting thing. Yeah. We um, saw a musical. We saw a play. Both of them were largely black productions. Well, let me just build on that in a second. The play is... A soldier's play. Right. Uh, written by Charles Fuller. Right. This is a revival at uh, done by the Roundabout Theater Company. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, it actually... The original was from 1981. Right. All right. And so this is a revival. And uh, as I was saying, it, the majority of the cast is black. Yeah. In this case... Uh, the playwright was black. Charles Fuller, sure. Yeah. All right. So yeah, and, and 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 well, there's even more than that. Let me give you another connection that may seem odd, but I want to uh, make this point. Um, I, you know, I seem to be focusing on this Gullah dialect. If you look up Gullah dialect in Wikipedia, and they go to works of art that use the Gullah dialect, uh, the two things they mentioned first were Porgy and Bess and a soldier's play. And, oh, because of the one character. Exactly. And it, not too, there's not too much uh, theater about that or movies about that. But it, let, let's go to the story. The basic story of a soldier's play is this. There is uh, an army outfit in Louisiana. Uh, it, it's an all-black outfit. Uh, and uh, this is during World War II. It's 1943 or 1944. And the uh, black soldiers aren't sent overseas. They're not seen fit to fight in that way. But there are other things for people to do in the U.S. Army uh, in the U.S., so they're not the most exciting stuff. In this case, uh, a lot of these guys play ball. They're like the best baseball team in the area, and they take some great pride in that. But they do a lot of Army drudge work uh, besides. Uh, And the story is uh, ultimately uh, the story of a murder, a killing that takes place uh, on the... uh, on the site, 
and someone's brought down to to solve the the murder uh, from outside, and he is a captain, which is interesting because the uh, the black soldiers tend to be uh, non commissioned officers, NCOs, and yet this captain comes comes down who is black, who's equal in command to the uh, captain who's been taking charge of these soldiers the before white the white yeah. captain. And now he's asserting his authority and there's some dynamic between the two of them and it's up to the captain that comes down, whose the character's name is Davenport, to solve the murder. And that's in fact uh, what he does. But so what you have, it's two things going on. You have what's described as a procedural. You have a law and order episode, but a, an excellent law and order episode, a super law and order episode. So it's a murder mystery. Right. Before the advent of law and order, by the way. And and at the same time, but you have these characters dealing with these other and and the white officer in a very frank way about what it means to be a black soldier in the U.S. Army in 1944. So it's very much about race. Well, yes, it's a um, picture of uh, the segregated uh, military culture right. of the time. And so that's quite interesting, horrifying, uh, right. etc. And uh, listen, I think this is a great production. Mm -hmm. uh, the uh, review that I saw in the New York Times was a little bit lukewarm. I think that's wrong. I think that's wrong. I think this is, uh, you know, I was interested the whole time. Uh, I enjoyed uh, the procedural aspect, uh, yeah. you know, solving of the murder. And uh, I think the people were good. Yeah. I think... Um, David Allen Greer. And, uh, um, Blair Underwood. Blair Underwood, who plays the black captain. Davenport. Uh, was fantastic, mm -hmm. I thought. And it's a no-brainer for him, I guess. Yeah. And uh, not because he was in, a, in L.A. Law, but uh, there was a great little article in the New York Times, an interview uh, with him and his father, who was career military. Right. And uh, Blair Underwood actually lived on army bases. And they asked him, what kind of preparation did he do for this? He said he didn't need right. much. He, you know, lived with this. Right. You know, not, uh, you know, uh, not the discrimination, uh, the, uh, the, the segregated uh, atmosphere, but understanding, um, you know, the um, military interactions uh, how an officer carries himself, <clears throat> how people salute, the language of the salute, mm -hmm. etc. Right, and I will say he seemed to convey that. Yeah, beautifully. I think so. And and and, and it, that was a nice article. And the father says, in fact, he thought the uh, depiction of race relations in the play was accurate. He was living that by being in the army during that period of time. Yeah. yeah, the father was. What, what at the times I thought was unfair in one way, although I think there's a there's a criticism still, or at least a difficulty. But here, I think the times was basically saying we didn't like this production as much as the original production. Whether that's important or fair I, is, is, I don't know. But the original production, again, was in 1981. Uh, it was done by the Negro Ensemble Company. It was off-Broadway. Uh, it had in it uh, Denzel Washington. Uh, it had in it Samuel Jackson. They were just soldiers in this. Uh, and it starred a fellow named Adolf Caesar. And I remember at the time um, reading about it. I was familiar with the play when it opened and it became a movie. And Caesar's performance was considered a tour de force. Uh, what at the part time. did he play? He, he played... Did uh, he play the, Davenport? No, David Allen Greer. He, okay. he, he played the, the fellow at the, fairly, at the center of the controversy. Um, 
and uh, he was uh, bitter, bile. It was it was it was a powerful, powerful performance. He was unknown before this. He became known because of this, at least for a short period of time. So it's very hard to match up. Uh, to that performance, and I think it's sort of unfair to say at the times that David Allen Greer doesn't have quite the well, depth. Yeah, they say he's miscast. Yeah, well, he's not, um, he's, but he's, he's nothing thing, like it. He Caesar. was in the original production, but it's, but that's the regular in a, soldier in a different part. <laughs> right, right. But he's familiar with the material, right? And he is uh, his interpretation is rather different. Sure, um, but uh, I can see it. I, look, other people, other reviews like him fine, but that was the time. But he, here's to me. Is a little bit of a difficulty, although bottom line, I'm with you. I liked it and I would recommend it. Um, you have, on the one hand, this, as we described it, a procedural, uh, this murder mystery, if you will, that, that that's being worked through. Uh, and you have, on the other hand, this issue of race that's being dealt with uh, in a very graphic way, in the way that people are dealing with each other in a very harsh way, actually. And the question is, um, how do they, how, how do those two things resolve themselves in a way that dovetails. Can you do that? It's easy to resolve the procedural. You find the murder, and right. that's what this does. Right. But uh, how does the race issue resolve itself in a way that resonates? And that's the problem because, you know, that it's that's still there. That's still hanging. There's no closure on that. And the way what they used to do that there were, there were, the traditional way of doing that at that period of time in 1981 was to have the uh, the black lead and the white lead shake hands and appreciate each other in the heat of the night. Okay, that's the way that gets resolved. Sidney Poitier, you know, and Rod Steiger shake hands, and Rod Steiger says, "Well, I guess you're okay," which was directed by the same person, by the way, who directed uh, Soldiers Play on uh, in in the movies. In 19, in- in, in nineteen, movie. yeah, in, okay. in the early eighties, but that's the way that was done. That was considered a resolution, and that happens in this play, mm-hmm. uh, and that's unsatisfactory in two thousand twenty. So that doesn't resonate. The other line that's supposed to sort of bring everything together is interesting. At the end of the play, and I'm not giving anything away, the uh, Davenport says to the white captain with whom he's dealing, "Get used to black people being in charge." Now, why is that an important line? Apparently, that was in the original play, mm-hmm. and it was bec- that was considered highly controversial. Mm-hmm. So much so, according to Charles Fuller, that's the reason the play never went to Broadway. Because, wow. because it ended with Get You, and he refused to take the line out. Okay. So now that's the button at the end of the play. Literally the last line. He says to, Davenport says to his white counterpart, get used to black people in charge. But in 2020, that's nothing. That's nothing. So it just doesn't, it doesn't have that clincher. It doesn't end. So it's a little, it's difficult. I don't know how to do it. Uh, so I think that's a little bit of a, it's built into the play. It's kind of difficult. But I, but I do think I recommend it. I think it's worth seeing. Absolutely. Yes. Absolutely. I uh, really thought it was uh, a terrific night of theater. Yeah. Um, then. This is quite a week. Then we went out last night to the McCarter Theater. In beautiful downtown Princeton, New Jersey. And we saw... A comedian. Well, we saw Andy Borowitz do stand-up comedy. Andy Borowitz, who's the author of the Borowitz Report, which a lot of people are familiar with, which uh, runs in uh, The New Yorker. Right. Uh, and has for years, which is a satirical piece that, uh, you know, comments on what's going on in the news and, and you know... In a, well, it's in not a just a piece. Some... It's his ongoing column. Yeah, sure. Okay. 
And uh, let me just uh, read some headlines right. from the Borowitz report, from various Borowitz reports. Uh, a um, recent one was called, and, and this is all under the heading, Not the News. Right. Um, uh, here's a headline. El Chapo outraged that his trial included witnesses. Mm-hmm. And then uh, the um, kind of uh, sub... Uh, Title is, if someone had told me you could have a witness-free trial, that's the route I would have gone for sure. Mm -hmm. Okay. And uh, then another one was titled, Trump says he has no intention of having Bolton's book read aloud to him. Uh, The president said he hears many books a week, but this was the last one he'd want Ivanka to read to him. Uh, And then uh, another one Trump defense team scrambling to find example of law Trump did not break. So far, no luck, a source close to the defense team said. Um, so, uh, yeah, so he's been writing this for 20 years. Okay, so that gives you a kind of a picture right. of what kind of political humor right. uh, is uh, going on here. And he took up uh, stand-up comedy about 10 or 15 years ago. And he literally took, I mean, he's. it's not like... He does one or two appearances. He does a lot of appearances every year, and he has a routine, which he right. works up and works on. And so it's a so different aspect l- of what he does. Let me just say that uh, one of the reasons we went to this was that you know his brother. Sure. Peter Borowitz. Yeah, yeah. And so, you know. Uh, I, and, I, and I've met Andy. Okay. I, I, I met Andy. And I, I was curious and I, and what I, this would be like. Yeah, and I think, uh, and I've seen Andy perform before. And, and I think Andy's funny. I think Andy's a funny guy. And uh, not all of it was political. Yeah. But most of it was political. Yeah. And, um, you know, there were little vignettes, pictures of, uh, you know, his father. Uh, oh, yeah. When I when I say Andy's funny, there was certain, you know, he talked a little about growing up in Shaker Heights in, uh, in Ohio, near Cleveland. Uh, really funny stuff. Uh, and, and a lot of other things. And yes, the same. one of the great lines was uh, he grew up, uh, essentially his family were drive-by Jews. Yes, right. Because, you know, he had his parents didn't go to temple, He but he had to be educated. But he had to go to temple. So they would drop him off and push him out of the car, and then they would hardly stop the car and keep going. That's the way they did it. Uh, and he talked about uh, one uh, Yom Kippur uh, going to smorgasbord instead of fasting. I mean, he had funny stories. Um, and but, at the end, there was a question and answer session. Yeah. And he was very good on his feet. Uh, he was good. I didn't love the question and answer session. The, uh, the, 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 the thing was this. Um, political is fine. And a lot of the political political humor can be very funny. And some of the, the pieces you just mentioned were obviously funny. You can see how someone could build on that and have something like that, even in a stand-up performance. The problem with this, and I'll just say right now, I, 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 had, I thought uh, it was good, but only okay. I thought he had a lot of funny stuff. And a lot of really lazy, not funny stuff. And here's what I mean by that. And you're going to disagree, but that's good. I mean, he started, and in the first five minutes, almost ten minutes, solid was, he just got out in front of an audience in Princeton, New Jersey, which is all liberal, and he said, but Donald Trump, what a turd. And he did variations on that theme for about six or seven minutes. And people were cheering and laughing and so on. And in my mind, that's juvenile. That's nothing. I mean, uh, yeah, you could, you could put a bunch of like-minded people together 
And you can have the lowest common denominator say, what a jerk that guy is. And everybody breaks into cheering. That's what that was. Right. That's what it was for seven or 10 minutes. Absolutely. And that I'm saying to myself, how lazy can you possibly be? How can you get up in front of 300 people and say, this is my material? Uh, later on, his material was good. But it was that. And he would come, every once in a while, he came back to it. Uh, and to me, that's hard to excuse. No, I don't think it's hard to excuse. Okay. I think it's what you pray for. Uh as a, as a comedian. Right? Maybe. Um, I'm not a comedian. Yeah. Okay. But I am sometimes uh, in a situation of speaking to a group. Yeah. And, uh, you know, trying to get a laugh. Right. And uh, in that situation, you pray for the homogeneous group. Right. Okay. That you can just say a particular word with a particular tone of voice and people laugh like crazy. Right. All right. Um, That's manna from heaven. That's a gift from God. You know know what the key is? And, you know, that is how you get the ball rolling. You know what? You know what the difference is? You're not a comedian. I don't mean by that you're not funny because you are as funny as Andy Borowitz. But, But what I mean by that is you're not charging money. And if you're going to get in front, ah, if you're going to get in front of people and say, "Look at that, what a jerk!" Uh, you can't do that for five or ten minutes. Just can't do it. I mean, and but but there's another element to it that that I find disturbing, because and and that's why I didn't like the closing. It's this, it's this group of like-minded people. I'm no Trump fan, but you have this group of incredibly like-minded people who are just, you know cheering or booing anything with the mention of Trump. And uh, and at one point, uh, Borowitz even says, you know, the problem isn't even Trump. The problem is the, 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 the people who voted for Trump. I have no problem with elitism. Uh, everyone in the audience, I understand, is elite. But the people who voted for Trump, they're uneducated. I'm paraphrasing. But that's basically what he's saying. And then he tried to make a joke of it that really... really, That's not my favorite. uh, Let me finish. That really failed entirely. So that's what he's saying. And people are cheering. That's right. It's the great unwashed behind Trump. And I'm I'm saying to myself, is that the way these people look at the world? That's what what they've learned since the... Well, let me finish. That's what they've learned since the election. They think Trump was elected because the great unwashed who didn't have an education voted him in. And uh, we'll all be right in the world a year from now. Uh, You know something? Uh, That's a lot. That's hard to take. Uh, and, and I'm saying well, myself, that's hard to take because that is an uneducated, unsophisticated view. In my mind, it is. That's yes. right. Okay. And so uh, you got me there. it was off-putting in that respect. So I do not give it five stars. Uh, okay. okay. But meanwhile, so here's the funny thing. So we went to Princeton. Yeah. And uh, we went to the little ramen place. Yes. To grab a bite. As, as, uh, as one does. Before we go down. As one does. And uh, so... Uh, at, we're either going to or from the ramen place, and behind the Nassau Inn, we see a tiny group of people ice skating. Skating rink. From out say, of nowhere. How is there a skating rink, rink in the middle there, of Princeton? And it's actually about 48 degrees. Right. And it's a skating rink. And, and we keep going. And this is not Rockefeller we Center. Keep, yeah. We Someone keep built a going. skating rink in we Princeton? Keep going. How could that be? And then. We open the paper today. And there's an article called in the New York Times with the headline, Ditch the Zamboni, This Ice Doesn't Need It. With stackable plastic panels, a company called Gleiss wants to build rinks for a warming world. And you said, 
Tamsin, this must be what we saw. And I Googled it, and you were right. It's unbelievable. Is this a development or what? This is okay. a synthetic ice. It comes in all these stackable panels. They Plastic just, interlocking Right. The truck panels. brings it by. You put it on the ground, and, and uh, you, you can, can skate, skate on it. It's unreal. And Anywhere. the maintenance is all you do is you power wash it the next morning, and there you go. And at last... 10 or 12 years, and you know when you do it when it, when it, when it doesn't work anymore because it's worn down? You yeah, turn it over. it over. You flip it over. I mean, this and is... Then it, use the other side This is like years. This is the biggest thing since Easy Pass. I mean, I can't believe this. And they're talking about these rinks being created and installed now in all kinds of exotic places with warm climates. There's one in Mexico City. Yeah. And, uh, and the expense... I mean, and if you compare the expense compared to a real rink in something like this, it's like night and day. This costs like nothing compared to real rink. Okay, so here's the deal. Yeah. Um, our beloved Lasker rink yeah. in Central Park right. needs renovation. Right. Costs millions of dollars. And uh, the Central Park Conservancy announced in the fall it was going to be spending $110 million. Right. To um, fix up the Lasker rink, which is actually kind of two giant rinks put together. Right. All right. So uh, this is uh, a lot of money. Yeah. Okay. So how much does something comparable in the Gleis cost? Yeah. I did the math. Oh, you did? And how much is it? And uh, for the same amount of square footage, yeah. it would be $1 million versus to install versus, the Gleis. Versus $150 million. Right. Versus about 110 Okay. Okay. Right. And they would last, as you know, 10 or 12 and it'll years. It would be easy and to maintain. Them over. And, well, let me make two points to that consistent with what you're saying. First of all, if they say it's 110 it's going to be 210 if they say it's going to take a year, it's going to take three years. And this doesn't even get to the cost of maintenance. And you want to know something? They'll do it anyway. So they'll spend all the money. They'll take all the time. And they won't look into this Gleiss alternative. I mean, clearly, the handwriting's on the wall. But, I mean, this is such an amazing development. And they say it's really good. Right. It, w- it was more or less developed by a Spanish ice hockey player. Yes. yes. Okay. And uh, it... W- you know, went from there. And the company is actually uh, in Lucerne, in Switzerland. All right. We look, uh, but we'll, you know, we don't have time. We look forward to seeing more Here's the only thing I want to say. Yeah. I think I don't like the pronunciation. How, how would you pronounce it? I think it would be more fun to say glisse. Sure. But glisse is another thing. It's an art term as well. So. I mean, this is amazing. You could put uh, uh, an ice rink in your backyard. I mean, this is crazy. So we're going to see a lot of... But people are doing that. Are they? Yeah. You can buy it. It's not that expensive. You can buy a small one for like 1200 bucks, mm. And Crazy. again, you'll have it forever. Wow. And uh, it's easy to take care of. All right. Of. That's what we're doing. Uh, so, so how can you possibly match that story? You're saying, here's a story about a floor covering, which is just revolutionary. You can't possibly match it. And yet, there's an article in the Times this, this week called Bricks Alive... Scientists create living concrete. I'm literally, that's literally what it says. And the explanation is a little bit thin, so I'm not going to be able to explain it because the information is just not there. But apparently they have developed a concrete that includes certain bacteria in it. 
And because the bacteria is in it, uh, they felt if they could find a way to maintain the bacteria uh, over time, in other words, to, to have the bacteria stay in the concrete but continue to be alive, they might reap wonderful benefits. And the way they came up with doing that is by adding Knox gelatin to the mixture. They literally went to the supermarket and bought Jello and added it to the mixture of concrete with the bacteria. And now they say they have developed living concrete, which they call concrete with this living organism in it. And what does that mean? Two things come to mind. I'm not making this up. Two things come to mind. Number one, since it's alive, over time as concrete cracks, the living concrete will fix the cracks. It won't be cracked. The second is that because it's living, it can grow. So they can ship the concrete blocks or one concrete block to Costa Rica, let's say, break it in half, and they can generate three or four or five concrete blocks. It will grow from the broken concrete block. So rather than having to ship seven blocks, they only ship two, and they regenerate the concrete blocks at the destination, which is an amazing thing. If they can well, that's it. going to be really handy when we um, settle Mars. Yeah, great. Yeah, settling Mars. This will be the key. And uh, there'll be ice skating on Mars because there'll be uh, glyce. Okay, so we'll just see. Uh, you know, that's going to take a while Yeah. to develop. It's interesting. But, you know, I mean, uh, the Romans changed the world with the development of concrete. Well, this So is, this, this is... could be the next big thing. It's amazing. All right. Speaking of big things, uh, Wall Street Journal has a big article on umami and uh, the history of umami. Mm -hmm. And you know what umami is, right? Yeah, you told me. And you haven't absorbed it. (laughs) It's basically known as the fifth taste. Mm. You know, we have sweet and salty. Yeah. And bitter mm-hmm. and sour. Right. And umami. Okay. Which is described as sort of meaty or savory mm-hmm. flavor. Mm-hmm. It's what makes things uh, taste good. Okay, listen. I'm... Basically, it was discovered or identified by a Japanese chemist in 1908 and uh, he um, figures out that an amino acid uh, basically glutamate is responsible for making things tasty all right and that becomes isolated in a product called MSG by the 1930s and uh, that becomes tremendously popular in terms of making things taste good then in 1968 there's a letter in the New England Journal of Medicine Mm -hmm. that posits that MSG is responsible for all kinds of bad things. You know, headaches, numbness, 
palpitations, weakness, mm-hmm. etc. It's never scientifically substantiated. Yeah, I think that's been debunked, right? But nonetheless, yeah. it sets off this huge reaction right. against MSG. Right. And, uh, you know, um, and, and you remember... Uh, those days, right? You go into a restaurant and they say, "Don't, no, 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 don't worry. We don't have MSG in any of our Chinese right. food." Um, but didn't, I and, read, didn't, uh, I, didn't I read it was recently debunked? Or am I wrong about that? Well, um, I think it is. I don't know if it was so much debunked as people said, "Wait a minute, there is no scientific That's, proof." I'll call that debunked. Uh, yeah, for right. that. So MSG has been. I mean, it required a lot of marketing, uh, especially by the glutamate association, rehabilitating the uh, image. Um, And okay, so um, what is umami, and what is it in? Mm -hmm. Okay, Uh, and it's in uh, seafood. It's in bacon. It's in tomatoes. It's in mushrooms, especially dried shiitake mushrooms. It's in uh, anchovies. It's in sardines. And you add any of these things to what you're cooking, and that makes it taste Uh better. Okay, so much of what we love to eat... Anything with Parmesan cheese, aged Parmesan cheese, is loaded with it. Okay. Um, And uh, you can make what you're cooking much better, much tastier. I mean, it's finally a word that's in the dictionary. I mean, we've been hearing about it for a long, long time. Finally... It's uh, sort of becoming uh, a part of uh, everyday... Mainstream. Mainstream. Okay. Um, Good. And so, you know, I would just say, throw some fish sauce in your um, pasta sauce, in your marinara sauce, is what uh, cool kids are doing. And it adds this earthiness. It adds another layer. Now, there's a lot of talk that um, the Japanese use the concept very subtly uh, with um, kombu, with sea- seaweed, uh, etc. And it's Americans who are kind of trying to punch you in the face with a huge umami flavor. But... Um, it can uh, really right. work. Okay. It can really. All right. Um, All right. So we're take uh, your cooking to another one final level. thing to note. Just totally. Wait a minute. Should I just? I just. Um, there's another headline in uh, the Wall Street Journal. Yeah. That caught my eye. Go ahead. Are leather shirts hopelessly smarmy? Yes. Yes. Okay. Moving on. Moving on. So. Uh, <laughs> That's not, of course, the Wall Street Journal. I don't want to be anywhere near anyone. The Wall Street Journal has a photograph shirt. which that contributes to that conclusion. On so many levels. Yes, but they don't, they don't, Wall Street Journal doesn't get it right. Um, 
this is just totally local, uh, but it's just a funny, cute uh, way of life. So we, uh, word is it that a local gas station is going to start selling beer around here. And we say, what the heck is going on? And it turns out there's a gas station which has a little space to the side, which was probably originally for bays that you could repair cars. But instead, they brought in some brewing equipment. And now a place called Oddbird Brewery exists. In Stockton, New Jersey. Where you can wander in, as we did on Friday. And instead of uh, getting someone to say, well, gee, uh, we're going to have to replace that muffler. They've, uh, they're saying, okay, we have uh, four different kinds of beers. Uh, you want to buy the glass or do you want the growler? Uh, out of nowhere, it's gas station beer. Um, and, of course, that what better development is there than that, than gas station beer? Well, there are these little craft breweries popping up all over the place. Yes, but this is But really... who knew there would be one near us? Well, this little craft brewery, this is like, uh, it doesn't get any smaller than this. It doesn't get any more local than this. And it comes out of, like, nowhere. It's like a pop-up brewery. Uh, and uh, it's a cute thing. They they create these growlers by sealing these cans while while you're standing there, and uh, it's kind of an yeah. amazing thing. It's, they have a can sealing yeah. machine. Yeah, it's fantastic. Odd bird. So we'll have to see if they only had the parking, I would see a big success for them. Uh, so that's it. I mean, there are two things we should comment on fast, and we're out of here. Number one, the Super Bowl is this evening. Uh, it's not going to help us you to hear my prediction uh, because you can't act on it. But I'm going to make it anyway just to embarrass myself. So, and I will say right now I see the 49ers winning and I see them winning relatively easily. So I'm putting myself out there. And the other thing is next week is the Oscars. And here you will hear this before the Oscars. And the question is, we should come, what's going to be best picture? And to me, it comes down to it will be one of two. It will either be... 1917 will be Parasite. I mean, we like Jojo Rabbit, but I don't think it's going to win. Uh, and um, I think it's going to be 1917. I'm going to put myself out there. Do you have any view on this, dear? No, I do not. Okay. So we just want to be on record. Uh, and uh, I think that wraps it up. All right. Time to go make the pigs in blankets. For the Super Bowl. Uh, this is Tamsin Granger. And Dan Abuhoff. With Tamsin and Dan read the paper. See you on the flip side.